Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, November 11th. Tennis in November is upon us. Now, there are typically two types of players who compete in this portion of the calendar. Type A are the players that compete in the award shows. Of course, by award shows, I'm alluding to events like Laver Cup, Davis Cup, Billie Jean King Cup, the WTA and ATP Tour Finals, and of course, the next-gen ATP Finals, which I want to discuss here on today's show. The final is set. It'll be Yuri Lechechka taking on Brandon Nakashima. I want to talk about each of their semifinal victories reflect a little bit more on Lehechka's season. I know we talked about Nakashima quite a bit with Nate Walrith. I'll throw in some additional thoughts on him as well, but want to preview that next-gen final coming up on Saturday, of course. Type B of players competing in this portion of the calendar are the players looking to make another leap up the rankings, position themselves just a wee bit better heading into the 2023 season. Those players can be found competing typically at the challenger level, the 125k level on the women's side at the ITF level across the globe as well. There are still going to be a plethora of pro tennis events of storylines for us to monitor down the home stretch here of the 2022 calendar, but a couple in particular I have my eye on this weekend that I think you should as well are the challenger events happening in Knoxville and Calgary. And in each of those events, you see just a wave of players with college tennis ties, players in some cases we've been fortunate enough to speak with here at Crack Rackets. In other cases, we've monitored from afar or, you know, had the chance to watch throughout the course of their college tennis careers. Of course, I'm referring to guys like Ben Shelton, whose top 100 debut is now inevitable. Just do the math. He's got nothing to defend through the start of May, and he's already inside the top 125, reaching another challenger semifinal, this time in Knoxville. Of course, he's joined this week by a guy he beat in the Charlottesville Challenger Final last week, uh, tennis Twitter personality extraordinaire, one of those players with a 100% approval rating amongst fans. Of course, I'm alluding to Chris Eubanks. By the way, Michael Moe also in those Knoxville Challenger semifinals, and Moe very much growing up was a part of the cohort. Tiafo, Paul, Fritz, Opelka, Kozlov, Moe. You had to say all of their names when discussing them. He's a former top five junior in the world, won just about every big junior event on the calendar, whether it be perhaps, or I suppose perhaps most pressingly, his Boys 18's Kalamazoo title, which he won, I forget, what was it, 2016, I want to say, for Michael Moe, uh, ultimately earning that wild card into the U.S. Open. The point is, Michael Moe, when healthy, has A, been a top 100 player already in his career, but B, has always shown the talent, the skill set, the competitive wherewithal to be a guy in the mix. And while he's had just too many injuries to keep track of at this point that seem to slow him whenever he gains a little bit of momentum. He was healthy throughout this 2022 season. He played some really good ball all year long. Great to see him finish strong in Knoxville. There's your Michael Moe rant a little bit early. I suppose we'll dive a little bit deeper when we look at Knoxville specifically. But the point is, if I can do 
a minute and a half on the Knoxville Challenger in the intro. We have to do a full segment on it here on today's show as a bunch of those players, players we like to talk about here uh, on the Mini Break podcast, of course, over in Calgary. The big story is rising fourth year at the University of Kentucky, Gabriel Diallo. It's going to be tough for Diallo to justify coming back to school given the success he has had on the pro tour here over the past six months. Diallo into another challenger semifinal, this time in Calgary. Really nice wins over a couple of seeds here this week. And look, Diallo, 21 years old, he's inside the top 250. He can go play qualifying at the Australian Open on his own ranking. And when you're in that position, again, we have to have the conversation here on today's show. Should he go back to school or not? If you watch him play, the answer to that question might just be no. He looks darn ready for a life on the Pro Tour. But we can expand upon that topic here today as again it is tennis in November we don't have 17 events that we have to talk about here on today's show I get to pick and choose a little bit with our coverage and certainly I do want to talk about the WTA 125 event happening in Kalina you've got top seed and former Pepperdine Fresno State standout Meyer Sharif who earned a really good win over 2021 NCAA singles champion Emma Navarro in the quarterfinals she's doing well Caroline Dalahide a friend of the the program has had a really good week on the singles court. Of course, she always has a good week on the doubles court, but playing really good singles here this week. So I want to look at that event as well and just set the scene for what is still another championship weekend in the pro tennis world. Two other things before we really take a deep dive into everything. A, I'm flying Han Solo here on today's podcast. What does that mean? Well, it's not only just going to be me steering the ship here today, but super producer Daniel Westoff is enjoying a much-deserved weekend vacation, and if I told you the hours Super Producer Danny Westoff's been keeping to prepare for some of the things we're really excited to be doing here at Cracked Rackets, it would make your jaw drop. You'd say that's a violation of the Geneva Convention, and that's why Super Producer Danny Westoff is the best in the business. Nevertheless, he's like, hey, can I take a weekend vacation? And I don't even know why he looks at me to ask that question, because it's an automatic yes for me. I'm like, dude, Take two weeks. Like, I can figure things out on the podcast front. I can call in former super producer Max Fliegner in a pinch if I really screw things up. I'm like, take the time you deserve. Nevertheless, he is gone this weekend. Why do I bring that up to say, A, let's all share in Daniel Westoff's joy and wish him a relaxing weekend away from my voice. But B, it means we're without an editor. And so I will do my best not to swear. I'm going to try really hard not to cough. I was a little bit sick this week and Thankfully, you guys wouldn't know that because Super Producer Daniel Westoff cleans everything up, but I'm going to do my best to avoid the coughing fits that occasionally occur. If they do occur, I apologize in advance as I don't have our Super Producer to edit them out. You won't hear the music either as well. So again, that's part A. Uh, One other thing I wanted to tell you, just me here for these weekend pods, but I wanted to offer some weekend pods because there is some pretty good tennis going on. Part B is, of course, a shout out to our dear friends at Tennis Point, who are the lifeblood of this podcast who allow us to do things like record late on a Friday night to get all of you ready for another championship weekend in the tennis world. Of course, if you're ready to get on court, 
here this winter, there's only one place to turn to for all the newest and best equipment at the lowest prices. It's with our friends at Tennis Point. You can find it all. Open your phone. Open your laptop. Tennis-point.com. You'll find everything you're looking for. Use our promo code CR15 when you do inevitably make a purchase. Not only will you get 15% off all sale items, you'll get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-Point. Symbol, not the spelling. Tennis-Point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into our November tennis action. We'll start with the Next Gen Finals. That's the premier event, I suppose, on the calendar happening this week. I know we broke it down in depth on yesterday's show, so if you're looking for takes not only on Lachetka and Nakashima, who will be competing in the final, but on what was a fantastic week for Dom Stricker. You want to hear a little Jack Draper talk. Maybe you're looking for a Matteo Arnaldi take. We offered them on yesterday's show. That's your Next Gen Finals deep dive, I suppose. But here on today's show, want to focus on the semifinals in particular. Let's start with Brandon Nakashima. At this point, it just needs to be said, the serve, the numbers, they're real. They manifest themselves every time you watch Brandon Nakashima play. And yesterday, that continued success on serve was very much evident as Nakashima, broken just one time, faced just two breakpoint chances. He earns a 4-3, 1-4, 4-2, 4-3 victory over Jack Draper. Now, he only broke serve once himself, came on a deuce point third set, I almost said second set, just on reflex. Third set of that match came on a deuce point, a long physical rally. Draper unable to get the ball by Nakashima. Nakashima uh, ultimately able to generate uh, with enough depth to draw an error out of Draper, or Draper tried to snap through a forehand and just, you know, wasn't quite able to do so. And so Nakashima takes the set 4-2. But again, first set, fourth set, Brandon was just so efficient on serve. He made 76% of his first serves, won 84% of his first serve points, 50% of his second serve points, was just dominant moving forward. And this match was played on Nakashima's terms. And I do think actually big picture, something I'm noticing about Jack Draper, he is a little bit more comfortable, particularly at this level, when he's four, five, six feet behind the baseline, showing off his elite athleticism and what are the, uh, what is the most underrated part of Draper's game is without a doubt his defensive skills. You see the big lefty serve, his willingness to serve and volley, his willingness to snap through a first forehand when that opportunity presents itself. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You're probably sick of hearing it, many break listeners. That's not what makes Jack Draper elite. It's the fact that A, he's never missed a backhand, and B, it's that On top of that offensive skill set, which is only going to get better with more strength, more repetition, more confidence, he has the underlying defensive skills to play defense in a pinch as well. The problem is he got a little tentative against Nakashima, and that's happened from time to time for Draper in some of the big matches that he's played. Now, I'm throwing out the U.S. Open loss to Hatchnoff because he was injured in that match, but certainly third set against Hercots in Antwerp, or, you know, I thought against Stricker round one even here in Milan against Tiafo, he kind of got pushed behind the baseline and wasn't as comfortable moving forward as his skill set dicks dictates he probably should have been, but the glass half full take would be, it's a credit to Brandon Nakashima, who 
anytime Draper, I don't want to say floated a backhand, but just hit a neutral backhand. Nakashima stepped up on his forehand, took that ball a little bit earlier, a little bit on the rise, was constantly moving forward, preventing Draper from employing the slice, which he does really well, to neutralize things and buy himself time to recover. Nakashima was at the net, taking that ball out of the air, just forcing Draper to have to come up with the spectacular in the big moments. And look, I mean, Draper lost two tiebreakers, 8-6 and 7-5. He very well could have won this match. It was that he was a little bit more tentative than Brandon in the big moments that ultimately separated the two of them. That said, the glass half full take was, again, Brandon was the more definitive player throughout the course of the match. And you look for Brandon now 4-0 during his trip in Milan, very much a worthy finalist, even, you know, already has a win over Lechechka, who ultimately ends up in the final. So I guess you can't say he had that much of a weaker group. But, you know, the big numbers for Brandon, which I will continue to emphasize, since the start of the French Open here this season, Brandon has been absolutely exceptional. And, you know, you look at the numbers, they indicate very much what we're seeing with our eyes. Brandon Nakashima, since the start of the French Open, 31-14. and 14. He's going to win over two-thirds of, of his matches to end 2022. Really, for two-thirds of the season, he was surpassing the two-thirds rule. And by the way, that's why he's ending the year inside the top 50 at number 49 in the ATP rankings. You look for Nakashima, obviously wins his first uh, pro title in San Diego. Good win over a very much informed to end the year, Marcos Garon. Uh, Also, fourth-round Wimbledon plays a really fun five-set match against Kyrgios. Third-round Roland Garros plays a really fun straight-set match against Zverev. And then third-round U.S. Open where he played a really fun four-set match against Sinner. Now, to become a top-25 player, he probably has to win one of those. But to be in the top 50... You get to third rounds of majors, you're a top 32 player at th- the three biggest, uh, three of the four biggest events of the year. That's how he finds him. You mix in your first ATP title as well. Again, 31 and 14. He's ranked where he should be ranked. And you look for Nakashima during this stretch, of course, most magnificently. He's holding 80 most magnificently. Sometimes I impress myself with the things that come out of my mouth because I'm telling you most magnificently was not a thing I planned on saying today. Uh, But he's held serve 87.4% of the time. I said this yesterday. I'll say it again today. That would trail Opelka, Isner, Hercots, Berrettini, and I think that there's one more player I'm blanking right now from a hold percentage standpoint, but he would be top six with that number. Average top 50 player holding 82.7% of the time this season. He's 5% better than your average top 50 player. Now, the break percentage is shocking, 18.2. That's a bottom 10 number amongst top 50 players. That said, you look at the splits. Brandon is 27-3 against players ranked outside the top 50, holding 91% of the time against players who are, I suppose, by ranking ostensibly worse than him. Um, He dominates them. If you don't have a weapon to disrupt Brandon's rhythm, if you can't serve big to his forehand consistently, force him into some errors, he's just going to dictate, and then he's going to break you down because he is very efficient on that backhand wing. He's just not going to make the wrong play at any point. Um, now again, the flip side, 27 and three against players ranked outside the top 50s, four and 11 against top 50 players. And this win against Draper was much needed for that four and 11 count. Now he's still holding 81.1% of the time, which is pretty solid, just, you know, percent and a half below the average of a top 50 player. The break percentage though, 23.3% against opponents ranked outside the top 50. That's a top 25 number. 
against top 50 opponents, 9.5%. That beat just Opelka in, amongst top 50 players. That's it. All due respect to Riley, that's not the company Brandon wants to keep, nor should he be keeping as a returner, given the fact that he's, I don't think I've ever seen him miss a backhand return, except for maybe when he's going big. And yeah, the forehand backswing is a little bit, but he can put that return in play 70% of the time, in my opinion, when he wants to. It's that he's trying to get aggressive. He's trying to build that skill set to be able to punish any weak first serve, any weak second serve, any weak serve that he sees just so that he can start on his front foot. Because as we've seen with that hold percentage, when Brandon's on his front foot, he just is closing out, closing off spaces and taking advantage of things so well. And again, that was the difference in this match. Brandon's willingness and eagerness, dare I say, to move forward. That's what separated him against Draper in the end. He also had a really good on-the-run forehand cross-court passing shot to win the first set breaker on an approach shot Draper hit short. And again, Draper just wasn't quite as good moving forward in this match. Now, again, for Brandon, the record against top 50 players certainly has to get better. And he's played some really good matches against top 50 players, you know, uh, whether it was the five-set loss against Kyrgios, the four-set loss against Sinner, the three-set loss against Dan Evans in Paris. But he's got to get better against top 50 players now because that's the litmus test for him. That's the group he now finds himself amongst He as a top 50 player and with some room to grow in January. Look for Brandon here in January of this season was able to win quarterfinal in Sydney, second round Indian Wells, second round Miami. Those are really the only points he has to defend through the first three months of the season. So let's say at a minimum, he doesn't draw Berrettini again. He wins one, two matches at the Australian Open. Now he's looking at maybe a top 40 ranking if he can do a little bit better in Delray or Dallas or even Indian Wells in Miami. Now he's a top 35 player. Now he's seeded going into a clay court stretch where he has pushed himself over the last two years. If you remember for Brandon last season, 2021, he could have stayed in America, could have played different sorts of challengers, but he didn't. He went and played Esterol and Belgrade and, you know, Roland Garros. My, and, you know, you look for him this season instead of going to play challengers again. He goes and plays Madrid qualifying, Rome qualifying, Barcelona, Munich. He knows the clay court season is going to be the part that he has to play some defense of. And if he can gain any sort of points in there, now he's well positioned going into that grass, hard court portion of the calendar where he cleans up. Again, Brandon's got an opportunity here to become a top 35 player. The math dictates as much in the first third of the season, and the results dictate as much as well. He has been a top 35 player to end this season. You look via our friends at Tennis Abstract, who, of course, provide not just many, if not all, of the stats you hear me allude to on the show, but they have their ELO ratings, which, of course, again, for those that are unfamiliar, because it's been a while since we've talked ELO ratings, the rankings on the ATP Tour, they measure when you beat someone, what round, you know, where you beat them. A Roland Garros third-round win is a Roland Garros third-round win regardless of who it's against. ELO ratings are a little different. They measure who you beat and what the score was when you beat them. And you look for Brandon Nakashima for what it's worth in the yearly ELO ratings. Brandon Nakashima up to number 40 based on his 2022 results. So that's a little bit higher than his ranking of number 49. You look for Brandon in terms of his overall ELO rating, which measures the totality of your results, not just the single season. Nakashima's up to number 35. 
So given the strength of his second half of the season, the ELO ratings indicate he's already a top 40 player. You know, the ATP rankings a little bit behind that. I think we could see him play a little bit of catch up through the first third of the season. It would not surprise me to see Brandon Nakashima seeded come the 2023 Wimbledon. There's a little take for all of you listeners, I suppose, snuck into a Friday night podcast. But again, big picture, Nakashima 32 and 14, I believe I said now to end this uh two-third stretch of the 2022 season. Yeah, that's pretty darn impressive. Excuse me, 31-14 and 14 overall to end this 2022 stretch. Yeah, that, that's really, really well done uh, for Brandon down the second two-thirds of the season. By the way, we talked to Brandon about a month ago on the Correct Interviews podcast. If you want to hear from him, dear friend of the show, deserves all of the success that he's had. You're not going to find a nicer person out there than the 21-year-old Nakashima, who is into the final in Milan. Again, knocked out Jack Draper. Now, you look for Jack Draper, turns 21 in December, finishes the season 46-19 and 19 overall, wins 71% of his matches overall, 24-4 and four at the challenger level, but more impressively, 19-14 and 14 overall at the ATP level, of course. Beats uh, Felix at the U.S. Open, makes the third round there, makes uh, second round of Wimbledon, uh, was able to reach quarterfinals in uh, or further in Eastbourne where he reached the semifinals, quarterfinals in Canada where, of course, he beat Tsitsipas, quarterfinals, Winston-Salem, got a win in Paris, makes the semifinals in Milan and ends the season ranked number 41. Not even 21 years old yet. And again, 41 in the world, really, really good place to be. I think all of us are buying stock in Jack Draper because, again, Draper, one of just 10 players this season to rank top fifty, uh, top 25 excuse me, in both hold and break percentage, one of 10 players you can say that about. And that's even if you exclude all of his challenger-level stats. That's what's most impressive to me is that, yeah, the stats dip. He holds 86% of the time versus 84.8 challenger ATP splits, which, by the way, it's not that big of a drop. The big number is he breaks serve 32.3% of the time at the challenger level. That would rank number one on the ATP Tour this season versus 23.7 at the ATP level, which is still above average and still makes him a top 25 player in both hold and break percentage. Uh, credit to Jack Draper, man. He's really good, and hes I don't think he's going to follow the top 50 for the next decade. I, I don't think that 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 is that spicy of a take. And again, 19 and 14 at the ATP level. You look for him against top 50 players here this season. Jack Draper, 11 and 10 overall against the top 20. He went five and five. Come on now. Like, we're all in. Not all. I mean, define all in. Jack Draper's going to be good for a really long time. And if that's what all in means on this instance, then I, yeah, I feel pretty good about that take. But of course, on the other half of the draw, you have Yuri Lachetchka, who, of course, was in Brandon Nakashima's group, finishes second in the Nakashima group, but earns a really impressive victory over Dom Stricker. And by the way, how I said I was going to do a little bit more on Nakashima. I think I did more than a little bit on Nakashima, but there was some Draper mixed in there as well. That said, let's look at the game of Yuri Lachetchka, who, as I alluded to yesterday, just has weapons. They're real. The serve, the forehand, when he's on his front foot, when he's able to dictate, when he's making the first serve at a high enough clip, 
you're just going to be in trouble. And Lechechka's ability to come over the top of the forehand to generate the pace that he does, not only down the line, but with the angle that he can cross-court as well. The forehand is un missile. I mean, it's an absolute weapon. And you look for him yesterday in a 4-1-4-3-2-4-4-1 4-1 victory over Dom Stricker. That weapon was exceptional enough, big enough, that as well as Stricker anticipates, as strong as his first step is, it was too big for Dom Stricker, who is still a little bit slow out of his corners and can get a little bit winded as the match goes on. And simply put, with how much space he had to offer Lahatchka, Stricker had to be 12 feet behind the baseline to give himself enough time to track anything down. And there are moments where Stricker, even 12 feet behind the baseline, because of the power he can generate, because of how exceptional his hand-eye coordination is, he can do magic in those portions of the court. That's why, as we alluded to yesterday, I'm not doing this rant again, but I'm so high on Stricker's upside moving forward. But, man, did Lachetschka do such an excellent job of taking the space that was offered to him, taking his forehand just on the rise and taking every additional second away from Dom Stricker. I thought Lachetschka returned really well on his backhand wing also. And, I mean, I went through these stats yesterday. Lachetschka 74 in the rankings to end the season now, 42-31 and overall for the year. 13 and 18 at the ATP level, 10 and 17 if you exclude the action in Milan and, you know, made two quarterfinals, one in Rotterdam back in February, one in Kitzbühel in July. The good news is one's indoor hardcourt, one is outdoor on clay. I mean, the challenger success has come on both clay and hardcourts as well, and that just continues to present the fact that when Lachetschka has time, he has weapons when he's able to play on his terms. I mean, you look for Lachetschka, who's holding serve only 79.3% of the time this season. Now it's 75.9% at the ATP level. But you look for Lachetschka this season when facing opponents ranked outside the top 50, uh, that hold percentage gets a boost. It's, you know, right around, excuse me, 81.1%. And I do think moving forward, Lachetschka will have that opportunity to dictate on his serve with that forehand against many opponents that he plays. Now, the problem is, Lachetschka's a little stiff. You kind of know what he's going to do on the backhand wing most of the time. He's going to try and drive it through the court. Yeah, he can hit the slice, but, you know, he either knifes it really well or he completely floats it. There's not a lot of feel on the Yuri Lachetschka slice. He volleys pretty well. He moves forward pretty well. Not exceptionally well, but pretty well. He does a lot of things good. I don't know what plan B is for Lachetschka when the serve, the forehand aren't working. I think he's okay defensively, but the forehand gets a little slap happy. Again, the backhand gets a little stiff. I think he's going to be a top 100 player for quite a bit of time. I think that serve, that forehand on the right weeks are going to win him a lot of matches. And on the right day, he's going to be able to upset opponents who are even higher than him on the ranking list. That said, again, it's a little bit of a one-trick pony. And that one trick worked exceptionally well against a guy in Stricker who didn't have the physicality to, and in this format in particular, the ability to track, that track down to the wrong word, but just kind of keep pace with Lechechka from a physical standpoint. Obviously, the further up the rankings you get, the more exceptional those players are physically, I suppose, is the wording I'm looking for here. That said, I really like his serve. I really like his forehand. It's not an insult to say someone's going to be a top 100 player for a very long time. They're going to make a career out of this. Now, I think he will be top 50 at points. Do I think he ever pushes top 20? I don't. I just don't see enough other things for Yuri Lachetschka. But guess what? 
there are only 20 top 20 players at any given moment in the ATP rankings. And to be, I don't know, the 52nd best player in the world for seven consecutive years, it's a really good, you're in a really good spot if you're Yuri Lachetschka, who at 21 years old is definitively a top 100 player, gets to constantly push himself against the best, and that will allow him perhaps to develop those plan B, C, D options in his skill set, because I know what plan A is, and plan A is going to keep him around for a while. You look for Stricker again. The fitter Stricker gets, the better the 20-year-old becomes, the higher his upside becomes. It is not if, but when will Dom Stricker crack the top 100 in 2023. I'll say this, he's got a lot of challenger points to defend earlier in the season, making the final in Columbus, winning Cleveland in February last year. Keep an eye out on Dom Stricker, though, because if he gets into the main draw of Australia, I want to see him play three out of five sets and just see how he paces himself, see how his weapons translate over that long a time period. That said, that's your look at the ATP Tour Finals. Again, uh, I know I did a little longer on Nakashima than expected, but I do expect Brandon to get through for what it's worth. Brandon, in their early play against Lehechka, earned a 4-1-4-3-4-2 victory. He broke Lehechka four times throughout the course of the match. Brandon also broken twice, but uh, that was his worst serving performance from a first serve make percentage. It was his worst serving performance from a first serve points one percentage. So Brandon didn't serve his best in that match. I managed to get through in straights, did a great job of just getting the return deep enough to take away the time on from Lachetschka to hit the plus one forehand freely, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. Um, I expect Brandon to be able to do the same backhand to backhand. It's not a comparison. I think Brandon's better at moving forward than Lachetschka, and I think Brandon's plan A is... I think Brandon's B, C, and D are better. I think his plan A is a little bit better as well. He's playing better, serving better. Again, I think Brandon wins this event, and then, you know the tradition, Hyun Chung did it, Stefano Tsitsipas did it, it means there's a chance Brandon Nakashima's going to end up in the semifinals of the Australian Open, folks. That's not me, that's the numbers telling us that, that's history telling us that, but that's your look at the next-gen ATP Tour Finals. With that said, let's move on and take a deep dive into some of the challenger action happening this weekend. It's always nice to get back to my challenger route. Shout out Mike Cash in the USTA Pro Circuit for Livestream.com slash ATP for all the years of tennis viewing. It provided me... Look, throughout my experience, I've seen a lot of Michael Moe, a lot of Chris Eubanks. Let's just finish the thought on Moe because I know I did a long intro on him. But for the 24-year-old who reached a career high of number 96 back in 2018, you look for Moe now in terms of his career in finals. Moe has made a healthy amount of challenger finals, 10 now in his career. He has seven challenger titles. Typically, that player is ensconced inside the top 100 by this point. Of course, Mo has dealt with so many different injuries since 2018. You look for him, was only able to play 40 matches down the home stretch of uh, throughout the 2019 season, and all but four of them came, uh, excuse me, all but six of them came after the month of July. You look for him in 2020, only played 22 matches. Obviously, part of that is pandemic-related, but uh, just didn't get a lot of tennis in, in 2019 or 2020 when his ranking had taken a hit due to that injury. Last year, only 40 matches. Again, missed a big chunk of time from May to the start and really end of August with injuries. This is the first year 
since that 2018 season where injuries haven't really been a factor. Mo able to play 67 matches this year. That's a healthy number. 40 and 27 overall on the year is Mo. He's made nine quarterfinals, eight of them, excuse me, yeah, nine quarterfinals, eight of them at the challenge, 10 quarterfinals. I was like, I'm missing something here. He's made 10 quarterfinals here this season, nine of them at the challenger level, one of them coming in Houston back in April at the ATP level where he was forced to withdraw before playing Kyrgios, but nine challenge quarterfinals is a really good number for Michael Moe, and that's why he finds himself back up at number 115 in the live rankings entering the week, and you look for Moe now with his run to these Knoxville semifinals. That's crazy. He's actually dropped two spots to number 117. That said, one more victory. He'll be back up to number 112, and if should he win the title this week, he's back up to number 106, so we're on title watch here for Michael Moe, who again has made nine challenger semi uh, quarterfinals here this season, has won two challenger titles. Mo this week, really impressive wins, whether it's 0-0 over rising Ohio State freshman Alex Bernard, who was like a top 20 junior in the world. Mo beat him 0-0 in round number one. 5-3 over big serving, big hitting, Ulysses Blanche, and then 3-4, really physical match against Tennessee Zone. Tennis Sandgren in Knoxville, and again, the variety of styles Mo's had to face this week, the physicality of Sandgren, the explosiveness of Blanche, the consistency of Bernard. Mo's matched up with them all, and he's only been broken twice in his six sets that he's played this season, uh, this week. He's won over 74% of his first serve points in all three of his matches, and of course, if you haven't seen Michael Mo play, two things stand out. One, he does have the ability to pop the first serve, 125, 130 with ease. B, you're not going to find a better mover on the ATP Tour. I mean, Michael Moe is everywhere. The first step, the sliding, the flexibility. Sometimes he's too athletic for himself. He hurts himself. But there's nothing athletically Michael Moe can't do on the court. He's gotten so much better. The forehand is in its like fifth iteration, but the backswing has gotten smaller. He's much more proficient hitting through it similarly, the or the forehand, excuse me. The backhand has always been exceptional in his feel on that ball, his defensive capability, his ability to hit the slice with pretty good depth. I mean, Michael Moe's a ball machine, and a ball machine who's got a 120, 130-mile-per-hour first serve as well, and the 24-year-old still got plenty of time to reach his ceiling. And if he's healthy and he gets there, that ceiling is top 50. That's just the sort of physicality Mo brings to every match that he plays along with that first serve that wins him the free points. Just the perfect pairing. He beats you in a 30-ball rally, and then he hits an ace by you. You're just... And by the way, he hits his forehand pretty freaking huge as well, particularly when his feet are set. Um, yeah, explosive. That's the word to use for the 24-year-old Michael Mo, who is into, again, a, uh, or who, again, has made nine challenger quarterfinals here this season, now into the semifinals for the sixth time in Knoxville, where, hey, he's going to take on big serving Chris Eubanks, 26-year-old Eubanks, into the semifinals now, uh, back-to-back weeks. He reached the final in Charlottesville last year, uh, last week, excuse me, before being knocked out by Ben Shelton. Eubanks is... 39 and 24 overall here this season. You look for Eubanks. He's made the quarterfinals this year at six different challengers, now into his third semifinal, and still looking for that first challenger title on the season. But you look for Eubanks now with his run here this week. Eubanks currently sitting at 131 in the live rankings. One more victory. He'll be back up to number 129. And 
I mean, look, for Chris Eubanks here this week, uh, or to end this season, excuse me, uh, does, or he does have some points to defend. Ah, that's why he's fallen, because he won the Knoxville Challenger title last year. And so, yeah, he's got some serious points to defend. Obviously, looming over all of this, by the way, is the U.S. Open Australian Open, uh, excuse me, the Australian Open Wild Card Challenge, the year Charlottesville, Knoxville, Champaign, whichever player can accumulate the most points in those three events. There's some other European or Calgary events that qualify as well, but whichever American reaches the most, receives the most points in this three-week run. You get a wild card in the main draw of the Australian Open now. It's part of a reciprocal program. French Open has one. Australian Open has one. They get French and Australian Tennis Federation's wild cards into the U.S. Open. Right now, Ben Shelton's in the lead. Shelton winning the Charlottesville Challenger, also reaching the semifinals in Knoxville. But Chris Eubanks is right there as well. Obviously, Michael Moe with the title this week. He can be in position as well. One of these three guys who are all going to be top 150 to enter the year are going to get into the main draw of the Australian Open. And, you know, again, if it's Shelton and he wins a match, he might be top 75 by the time we get to Indian Wells. Um, But Eubanks... Still 26 years old, still looking for a top 100 debut. He's on the precipice of it. Michael Moe on the precipice of getting back. By the way, you look for Eubanks quickly this week. He's been broken twice, hasn't dropped the set yet. Uh, you look for Eubanks dominant on serve here this season, holding 86.9% of the time. That would be a top 10 number amongst top 50 players. Obviously, you'd have to adjust for the level of competition. But Chris Eubanks is playing his best tennis, which is a damn shame because he's really good in the Tennis Channel booth. And thankfully for me, a guy who's hoping to get more chances at TC, I suppose Eubanks might be busy playing some pro tennis because, again, precipice of the top 100, planning that trip to Australia, no doubt. At a minimum, he'll be seated in qualifying. Really good year for Chris Eubanks. And then, look, if you're not on the Ben Shelton bandwagon yet, I don't know what to tell you. You look for Shelton now with his run here. And again, it's all free points for Shelton. He's only moving up. Shelton up to number 119 in the live rankings. He gets another win. He'll jump up to number 113. He wins another title this week. He's up to number 107. You look for Ben Shelton now. Again, has absolutely nothing to defend until the start of May. uh, Excuse me, until the last week of May. Nothing to defend. Until the last week of May. And you look for Shelton now. 33-11. and 11. He's doing the Jensen Brooksby. He's doing the Jack Draper, folks. 33-11. and 11. He's winning 75% of his matches. You look for him. Seven challenger quarterfinals this season. Ben Shelton, 7-0 and 0 in quarterfinal rounds. Including an exceptional 5-4 and 4 win over Alexander Kovacevic. Who is not that far removed from a 250 semifinal. Again, Shelton, 7-0. and 0. Seven challenger quarterfinals since the end of May. That's ridiculous. And he just turned 20. Absolutely ridiculous. You look for Shelton holding 87.7% of the time. That would be a top five number amongst top 50 players. Obviously, you have to adjust for level of competition. He's played a lot of indoor hardcore tennis, but it's working, folks. 7-0 is Ben Shelton. And the numbers say it. The eye tests say it. You know, what I really liked against Kovacevic was his willingness to go 12 feet behind the baseline just to get a clean rip on the return to not provide Kova an easy plus one forehand. Now, Kova still came up with first strike magic, but man, Ben Shelton can do a little bit of everything. The first serve is just absolutely lethal. The serve and volley play is so fluid. He is an exceptional volleyer. The backhand gets better. 
If you give him time on the forehand, you just have no idea where he's going to go. He'll be top 50 then next season. I don't think that's that spicy of a take to offer all of you listeners. But it's a really fun set of semifinals. Again, Mo taking on Eubanks. Mo 5-1 and one in the career head-to-head. That said, according to Tennis Abstract, Eubanks on this surface, the 57.4% favorite. Shelton, the 73.4% favorite. He's taken on 7th seed Enzo Kokoud. Shout out to Kova, by the way. Alexander Kovacevic has played really good tennis here this year in the former University of Illinois All-American 174 in the live rankings as such. Nine spots off his career high ranking. He gets to go play qualifying in Australia as he should. And given some of his struggles to start the year, he's another guy. Maybe top 125 watch to start the season. Good run for Tennis Sandgren as well as he tries to build back his ranking. That said, two other events I want to just touch on quickly here to end today's show. The Calgary Challenger, the WTA 125K uh, happening this week as well. You look at Calgary, three college guys, Dom Kopfer, Alex Vukic, Gabe Diallo, all into the semifinals of the action for Diallo. Wins over a Klepo, the qualifier, beats Vikovic 3-2, and two, a three-set win over 60 Antoine Escoffier in the quarterfinals as well. You look for Diallo now. He's up to number 222 in the live rankings. 21 years old, has zero points, zero points to defend for the first five months of the season. Very much a Ben Shelton situation. You look for Diallo now, 22-8 and eight here this year. You know, wins the Futures title in East Lansing in June, then wins the Challenger title in Granby, finals in Fairfield where he's knocked out by Michael Moe. Now a semifinal here in Calgary. By the way, you just look at it, four Challenger quarterfinals for Gabe Diallo since the start of August. Four of them. So he's into the top 250, has nothing to defend for the first five months of the season. And you watch Diallo play, he's hold and serve. It says 80.7% of the time they're missing some matches. It's higher than that. Uh, He's also breaking serve about 22.6% of the time. That's about your average number of a top 50 player. But here's the thing. He's 6'7", incredibly fluid as a mover. The backhand, easy, forehand, not an extended backswing. He's got plenty of time to swing through that ball. He's not a great volleyer, but he is getting more comfortable moving forward. I mean, again, when he imposes his size on the opponent, you're just in trouble. He's playing on his terms when he's landing the first serve. He has the weapons. He has the physicality. He's going to put on at least 15 more pounds to his frame. He's really skinny, six foot seven, a very fluid six seven, but a very skinny six seven. The weapons are there. The ranking is there. The open five months are there. Again, he's going to get into Australian Open qualifying. I don't know how you can turn that down. I don't know how much we see him at Kentucky next season, if at all. Now, I know he really wants to play for the Wildcats because, look, they're the defending NCAA finalists. And if Draxel comes back and can clear everything up, you know, if with Ilafi Aini coming over from Cornell, top, 25 quality player in the country, and that's your top three, Diallo, Draxel, Aini. I'll take that top three, and we'll figure the rest out. Of course, they still have Lapidot. They bring in Tahabadi. Kentucky can win a national championship next season. For a 21-year-old who has got looks at it and says, I got plenty of time to play pro tennis, which he does, you can understand that inclination to want to come back to school, to enjoy life a little bit longer. That said, 
He also has professional aspirations, and at a certain point, whether it's resources that will be provided to him or just the opportunity from a rankings perspective, this is a really tough opportunity to come down. So I don't know if we see Diallo come back. If he wins the challenger this week, for what it's worth, he'll be all the way up to number 191 in the rankings. I don't know if he can come back if he's top 200. I think at that point he almost has a responsibility not to because of how available a top 100 debut would be given again five free months of tennis to just add points to your resume he's gonna have a really tough one though as he takes on fifth seed dom kopfer kopfer a good win yesterday over harold mayat you look for kopfer looking to work his way uh, back up the rankings. Currently, Kopfer 237 is the 28-year-old former top player in the country for two lanes, the much-needed semifinal for Kopfer. You look for Alex Vukic. It's been a good year for the former Illini All-American, the 26-year-old currently sitting at 150 to end the season with Australia coming up. Obviously, he's always had some success in that home country. He's going to have a big opportunity here. He's a 59.1% favorite over qualifier Max Kaznikowski. Kaznikowski, a very Impressive six and three win over Vashik Pospisil. As of right now, by the way, Kopfer's the favorite to win the title. Then it's Diallo at 28-9. And they have Kopfer as a, only a 55.2% favorite over Gap Diallo. That's a testament to the pro success he has had over the past few months. That said, that's your action in Calgary over in Kalina. Meyer Sharif continues to rack up the 125 victory. Sharif into another semifinal. You look for Sharif now. She's currently sitting at 56 in the live rankings. And for Meyer Sharif here in the 2022 season, 28 and 15 overall. But you look for her. Uh, it's her fourth semifinal of the year. Three of them have come at the 125K level. Four of her five quarterfinals have come at the 125K level. Guess what, folks? It's the Greek spore Benjamin Bones, the equivalent of that's how you get yourself in the top 75. Get yourself shots to play all the big events. Sharif, a really impressive 0-2 win over Navarro in round in the quarterfinals. Also a 6-2-4-6-7-5 win over a player not eliminated from the GOAT discussion in teenage sensation Brenda Fruvertova. So a couple good wins for Sharif. She's this huge favorite according to Tennis Abstract, 63.6 to win the event. She's going to take on Caroline Dalahide now. Dalahide, really impressive wins over Su Jung Jung in round one and then a very nice win over Julia Graber in the quarterfinals. You look for Dalahide now as she tries to build back her singles ranking, 147 for the 24-year-old. She's in strike zone, folks. Obviously a top 50 doubles player, but it's a short list of players who are top 100 in both singles and doubles. Dalahide should, at some point in her career, be on that list. Your other semifinal, Dunka Kavinic, going to take on Katarina Baindol. Kavinic, a 61.6% favorite, but Baindol, 3-2 and two in the career head-to-head in that matchup. So that's the fun action happening across the board in what should be a very fun championship weekend in the pro tennis world. Of course, I think I will be back tomorrow to recap it all, talk next-gen finals, who emerged in Knoxville, what does the U.S. Open Wild Card Challenge look like, and so much more, of course. As always, I'm going to give a shout-out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff. I'm not going to swear because he's not here to actually edit it. Again, taking a well-deserved vacation, but shout-out to Westoff, who, as always, is the best in the business. Of course, a shout-out as well. To our dear friends at Tennis Point, remember tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of your tennis equipment. With that said, for 
our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.